Psalm 73 is where we turn this morning. Psalm 73 might be an appendix, if you don't mind, to our study in the book of Job. There are many similar psalms in the scripture that speak of this very same issue, the question of justice, the question of suffering, the question of uh, the contrast between the wicked and the righteous and, and these things. Psalm 73 is just one of those many examples. A tremendous psalm, powerful psalm, a rather long one, which I'm going to try to get through all the, all the way through uh, yet this morning. I'll not be able to hit all the wonderful uh, truths that are in here, but try to summarize them uh, for us this morning. You'll notice, and this is an important element, this is part of your textual uh, approach to Scripture. There is in your text a, perhaps the, the title, or excuse me, the number, Psalm 73, very important, uh, that's added by the textual, or the, the translators, or even the publishers of, of that edition of the Bible. Maybe there's a summary statement, for example, my uh, Bible says, the nearness of God is my good. Well, that is another addition, if you don't mind, or a uh, publishers kind of help to the reader. This is summarizing what's the content of this psalm. Those are not in the original Hebrew text, so uh, don't don't uh, get confused about that because the next line, at least in my version, is a psalm of Asaph or Asaph, if you want to go in the Hebrew pronunciation. But um, this guy Asaph wrote this psalm. Well, that is in the original text. In fact, many times you see other indications, maybe a dedication. And for example, Psalm 70 says, for the choir director of David uh, to bring to remembrance. And so we see those are what we call superscriptions. Not because they're super good, they're just above. They write, they're written above. Super, like Superman is above. Um, so it's a superscription. Why do I say that? Because we have this guy Asaph. And, and knowing that this is the man who wrote the psalm, helps us understand, wait a minute, if he can struggle with these kinds of things, knowing his position, his role in, in Israelite society, I guess that gives, um, not license necessarily, but at least it gives permission, not even permission, it gives an example, I guess, not a good example, but it shows that, boy, we need the Lord, every one of us, whether you're a professional religious dude like Asaph or just somebody, in the Lord. We need God's nearness. The nearness of God is my good. Well, he opens this psalm with a statement. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's important to recognize the theological truths of this word and you think of this uh, statement here. This is a, a conviction statement. This is what he believes truly in his heart. God is surely God. Of course God is good. Absolutely, positively, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We're talking about God. He does not use the covenant name Yahweh, but he says, look, we're appealing to God, the only God who there, who there is. There's only one God. And he's good to his special people, his chosen people, Israel. He is good in so many different ways. In fact, if you wanted to consider the different ways, very practical, very tangible ways in which God is good and has been good to his people, you can read in Deuteronomy 28, the list of blessings that God just keeps on heaping onto the heads of his people Israel, that they'll be the tail, excuse me, they'll be the head and not the tail, that they would lend and not uh, borrow, that they would be the leaders, all these wonderful things, practical, tangible truths. So it's not just, oh, God is good, God is good in a kind of a not able to feel it kind of way. No, God is practically good. He gives good. He, he's so diverse. He's so comprehensive. He's so uh, tremendously available. He's so much attentive to his people. He's made promises to Israel, and he commits to fulfilling those promises. He goes on and says, it's not just Israel, the whole nation, but this is Israel, those who are pure in heart, those who are right before God, those who are, uh, if you don't mind, kind of justified by grace through faith, those who are in Christ alone. Now, I know that's kind of anachronistic because this Christ came later, but he was always anticipated from the beginning of the book uh, to the end of the book. He, we look forward to our Lord Christ, those who are pure in heart, those who are clean, those who would, in other words, be the righteous people. And we want to be practically righteous, of course, but those who are righteous before God, those who have and integrity, those who have a sincerity of heart, a fearing God, those who are like our man Job, right? Blameless and upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Those kinds of people. That's what uh, Asaph is, is celebrating and, and, uh, and rejoicing in. Now, Asaph knows these truths. Uh, one of the repeated refrains of um, 
Israelite worship, and to our worship should be anyway, as well, is that God is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, right? That's what Asaph told the people. And I said, well, wait a minute, what, what, what's his role? You said he's a religious professional. Yeah, he's a Levite. And you think, really? Okay, that's great. What's a Levite again? Well, a Levite is this guy, a group of people, who are descendants of Levi. Okay, we got that. Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, of Jacob, and the one family group from which all the priestly service, all the temple, or in that initial time, the tabernacle work, and then the later temple work is done by the Levites. And even more specifically, one uh, um, clan of the Levites is the clan of Aaron, the Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, if you get that term, talks about those who are descended of Aaron, who serve as, as the, the priests, the high priests, and so forth. But then you have all the Levites, not the Aaronic priesthood, but the, all the Levites, of which Asaph is one, who have different functions. During the tabernacle time, they were the ones who carried the different parts of the tabernacle and set it up and, and did all that. In the time when that tabernacle was established, they were the ones who helped with the sacrifices and getting the fire going and bringing the water in and all the stuff. There was another group of Levites, of which Asaph was one, who was given special role, a special role of uh, singing, singing in the tabernacle, singing in the temple, singing around and encouraging the people. He was a Levite encouraged to teach God's word in song. And he was appointed even by David. This is, Asaph is in the, in the time period of David, so about 1000 BC. And he was appointed as even the chief singer. So not just one of the, the common people in the, in the backup choir, but he was the one out leading and directing and stuff. And he was appointed by David, especially to give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. So he knew this truth, right? Absolutely knew it, and taught it to other people. But there was a problem. Verse 2, as for me. Now this is where he gets kind of uncomfortable with us. I mean, he's, he's telling us things, and we, can you just keep that to yourself? And he says, I did keep it to myself, and I did it for reason, because I was still in the thick of it. But once I came through it, now I'm helping you because I know if, if I've had that issue and I am steeped in this re religious, you know, uh, um, cultic in a good sense, uh, um, the, the customs and, and culture of the Israelites to worship God. If he was a professional dealing with this all the time, well, certainly we might be able to benefit. I mean, this is, this is for everybody. As for me, he said, my feet had almost, almost slipped or stumbled rather. My steps had almost slipped so he's bringing a confession. This is autobiographical. Notice it's a psalm of Asaph. It's not somebody wrote this about him, you know, expose, you know, the truth about Asaph. No, this is him having gone through this, this horrible experience, now wanting to be a blessing to other people. As for me, let me tell you, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. We're in the middle of summer, and yet in, this, in the wintertime, you know sometimes when there's ice on the floor, sidewalk, on the, on the driveway, whatever it is, there are times when you are comically slipping, sliding all over the place. Your feet just go out from under you, and you have a rather hard landing upon a hard surface. And Asaph says, that was me, almost like that. I was, I was in a very treacherous spot because somehow my feet had gotten off of that sure foundation, the sure truth that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I began looking elsewhere. You remember, you picture in your mind maybe, when Peter, Apostle Peter is there uh, and on the, on the Sea of Galilee walking out to meet Jesus. As soon as you know, his eyes were on Jesus, no problem. When his eyes turned to the wind and the waves, he started sinking and he prayed a wonderful prayer. You ought to memorize this one. Lord, save me. Okay, that's a good one. Good prayer. And Jesus reached down and pulled him up. Jesus is standing on the water too. So it's not really where you're standing so much, but where is your perspective? Where is your, your, your attention directed? And so as for Asaph, as for me, I got my eyes off of the Lord. I got my eyes off of my theological doctrine that I knew, and I almost slipped, almost stumbled, almost went into a, a horrible situation. Well, why, uh, Asaph? Why'd you do that? Was it, a, was it a horrible disease like our brother Job, right? Was it a, you know, loss of your family and, and your livelihood? And all? No, it wasn't anything, anything like that. As for me, this happened. Four, verse three, I was envious of the boastful. I saw the peace of the wicked. I was envious. 
I just had a desire, uh, having seen what they have and seeing what I have, there was a disconnect. Wait a minute. God is good to Israel, right? To those who are pure in heart? Well, why is he being good, if not, you know, if not better, to those, how does he say, these boastful people, these wicked people? If, there, if God has made a distinction, if he has set us apart for himself, and he is good to us, and so tangibly, wonderfully good to us, and here, of course, you have the King David, and the, as a king, you have this, you know, the expansion of the kingdom under David. You have the not the temple itself, but the the uh, the ark has been brought in. And back back, it's one of the times when David said, "Ace, if you lead the Thanksgiving work here, as we bring the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem." And so you have this wonderful experience. Wow, God is with us. But what about those wicked people over there? Now, he doesn't describe who they are. He describes more what they're about and their different benefits from his perspective we often think oh those are the godless pagan heathen people could be could be just jews you know so not pagans but living like pagans living like they have no regard for god in fact we'll see the quote from them perhaps later in this psalm but he sees them he sees them doing all these wicked 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 things that they're just full of themselves they're boastful and asaph began to get envious of them. He began to have a resentful discontent. Looking at what they have, uh, the, the, you know, they're boasting and they're getting away with it. They are peaceful. They're, they're, there's no opposition to them. It's just like they're a big bulldozer going through and, they, they're, and then they're there and they win and they have victory. And where, where does that leave us? I thought God loved us and he was kind to us and, and good. Envy can have a positive sense it's not what he's talking about here but envy can be a positive trait like um, a jealous desire or a zeal you think of jesus zeal for your house has consumed me so it can be that kind of thing and would indicate then a watchfulness uh, to guard something because it's precious to you you're you're zealous for that you are uh, jealous um, for the protection of that thing but he's not talking about it in positive fashion this is a feeling of discontent and even ill will so it's it's about me I'm not happy, I don't have what that person has, and I'm angry with them that they have it. And even, if you don't mind, the anger is kind of directed toward God because, wait a minute, God, you're supposed to be good to us. What are you doing with them over there? And you're kind of, those, those blessings are supposed to come over this direction, but they're going over that direction. I don't understand it. He was envious of this, these boastful, wicked people's advantages, possessions, their privileges, their health. He talked, in fact, that's his first thing about health and even their death and dying is, is easy for them. Their relationships, they're just, man, what's the deal? And he is just so resentfully discontent about these things. There are many examples of envy and jealousy. You know, we even have a, a, one of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet. Don't have a secret desire for that which is somebody else's. Don't begrudge other people for what they have. I mean, truly, if we can't, it is easier, if you don't mind my saying, it is easier to weep with those who weep because at least they've got it better off than I do, right? We're going to weep with those poor brothers over there. But to rejoice with those who rejoice, oh, praise the Lord, you just, whatever. And and then you start thinking about yourself, man, I wish I had that too. And then that turns to envy so quickly. So wickedly, humanly speaking, it's, it's, it's easier. It's more comfortable for us to weep with those who weep. But to rejoice, to celebrate God's goodness to them, not to the wicked and arrogant and so forth, but to those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a joy to celebrate God's goodness. Asaph said, I was on a shaky foundation, a slippery foundation, because of my change of perspective, my change of attention, even the way that I was interpreting things. Somehow God is, is good to us, but what's he doing being good to them? And he is angry at the peace, you know, this word shalom. He's, he's angry at the, the comprehensive, uh, collective, uh, just fullness that, that God has given to these people. And he doesn't understand it. He's doing his work. He's leading the singing. He's giving thanks to God. But he's saying, God, when are you going to be good to us? When? And when are you going to take away your goodness to them? They don't deserve it. Don't, God, don't you know who they are? Well, he goes on, verses 4 through 9 or so, or 12, and this, this middle section really identifies several different aspects of these wicked people. And what, what is their life about? And th- this is his perception. And notice, if you don't mind, as we read through these texts, what you see in our modern age through 
social media or through magazine uh, covers, articles, whatever, that celebrate this, this beautiful picture of uh, whether celebrities or just the rich and famous or whatever kind of people. And you think, they're not godly. They're wicked. They're arrogant. They're rude. They're pompous. They're full of themselves. And yet they have everything and their life is so easy and they, they look beautiful and they have beautiful people and beautiful children and beautiful relationships and, and they have you know zeros and zeros and zeros after their you know, net worth and I'm just trying to survive. I'm trying to please the Lord and what's this about? Well, what we see in social media or in the magazines is kind of the, the one side of their life. If you could see the underneath part, the, the scorn, the envy, the jealousy, the rage, the strife, the contention, the uh, multiple marriages and all broken marriages, the, the angry children against the parents, the strife against their former employees, co-workers, whatever. Man, that, you see the rest of the picture, then maybe you don't really envy so much their beautiful life, at least as it's presented beautifully. Anyway, so Psalm 73, verse 4 and following talk about these different benefits that Asaph begrudges these boastful, wicked people. There are no pains in their death. Their body's fat. And you think, well, they're dying? Why are they going to die? Well, the the idea is when they do come to die, because everybody is going to die at some point, but they didn't die of a long, lingering sickness or disease or an injury. They just kind of stop breathing and they're gone wait a minute, they were in the prime of their life perhaps, or maybe after their prime, because to die in the prime of your life is kind of a, it's not a blessing, but they just easily transferred into eternity. He says, oh, I'm angry with that. Their body's fat, not saying, you know, obese. He's just saying they were well-fed, not gaunt and, and uh, impoverished like I am, Asaph might say. Verse 5 says, they're not in trouble as other men, and they're not stricken along with the rest of mankind. It's almost like the curse does not apply to them. Why does everything they do turn to gold? Everything they touch turn to gold. Why does every, every business deal, every situation in life, they don't have the same trouble. Why do their children obey them? Well, maybe you're not seeing the whole picture with that regard. Why, why are they not in trouble like everybody else? Why are they special? And why is God giving them that special? Doesn't God know about them? They're not stricken. You know, that's kind of a, a harsh, you know, um, raising the hand against one another, along with the rest of mankind. They're somewhat above their exceptions to all these rules of, of how things go along. They don't have the same misfortune or trouble or anguish even that the rest of us do, the rest of mankind. Here are these special group of people. They shouldn't be special. Or if they should be, if they're special, they should be special in judgment because of their wickedness. Verse 6 says, Therefore lofty pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. They're just out there living this loud, you know, living loud, I guess, is a saying. And their necklace, their uh, you know, marker of adornment, and even you know, putting it on display for other people, what is their, what are they communicating to other people? They're proud, full of themselves, arrogant, all boastful, puffed up of, the, of their own selves. And they therefore translate that into violence, condescension at least, but violence toward those who are less than them. And that God is somehow not attentive to their pride and their violence toward other people. That's wrong. God hates those who plot and carry out evil against their brothers. But that's what these people are doing. Necklace and the garment. This is outside observational uh, data that people, I mean, everybody knows. So-and-so, he's not a good fella. Nasty. Horrible. You know what he's done to other people? He is no good. Verse 7 their eye bulges from fatness. The delusions of their heart overflow. Now, you can take this literally because he says these people are fat. Again, not in an unhealthy way, but just they're well-fed. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're doing fine. But even their eye bulges. And either, either the, their eye is protruding, eyes are protruding out of their face because of such largeness, or that... The, uh, the fat around their eyes, I mean, they just are, are heavy in their face. And, or it could be, because it talks about the delusions of their heart, that it could be that they are filled with greed, filled with greedy eyes. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told about the landowner who went out to hire workers to work in his field, hired some at the beginning of the day, I'll pay you a denarius for your day, and they hired many people throughout the day, and he started paying them back from the, the last ones hired to the first ones, and they all got the same wage. And the, the people who were first thought that, well, were we born in the heat of the day and all this kind of stuff? Shouldn't we be paid more? Well, you agreed to work for a denarius. I paid you a denarius. What's the problem with that? And the 
Jesus goes on and says, this is Matthew 20, verse 15, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So it has to do, I think, with greed and just being full of your own selves. This idea of delusions of their heart overflow. This, you remember Proverbs 18 and verse 11. A rich man's wealth is a strong city and like a high wall in his own delusion. He thinks that his wealth can deliver him from all manner of things. And that's what these people think. These rich, wicked people. Uh, when wealth is useful, but it's, it's not a protection against the most serious issue that, that people face. And that's not life in this world. It is God's judgment, which Isaac doesn't have a picture of quite yet, but he will. So these people are greedy. They're full of themselves. They scoff, verse 8, they scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. And then verse 9 similarly says, they've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue goes through the earth. So not just do they act kind of in this pompous way, but they speak. And their words are just nasty. Uh, They wickedly speak of oppression. No, we're going to beat you. We're going to take this. We're going to steal that. And then they carry it out. And they speak as if from on high. They speak as if they are God himself. They speak and act like like they are uh, acting in the place of God, bringing judgment upon whatever. But wait a minute, you're bringing judgment upon good people. You're bad people, but you're doing it against good people. They've set their mouth against the heavens, not in cooperation with God, but against God and saying, no, we're going to do this for ourselves. We're going to do this for our own glory. Kind of reminds you of the blasphemy, the boasting of Satan back in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 when he says, I'm going to make my throne and establish my throne in the heavens. Kick God out because I'm going to be the one in charge. And that's what these people are doing, acting as if they are God himself. This verse 10 is kind of hard to understand. It can be taken different ways. It says, therefore, his people return here to his place and waters of fullness are drunk by them. It could be speaking of the people of the wicked or the people that the wicked attract. Um, do you remember when David is running away from Saul? He's down in the cave, well, down in the, the um, lowlands, off of the hill country. He's trying to find refuge from, from Saul so he won't be killed. And what kind of people are gathered around him? Not the good people, a bunch of rabble rousing, roughneck bandits, and not good situation. He, but they were attracted to him because, oh, he's on the outs. He's an outlaw. So we're going to attract, or, or these bad guys are going to be attracted to him. Could be that's the idea. His people, the other no-gooders, no-good, no-do-gooders are there with him. And, and they, just, they just go out and raise Cain, or they just wreak havoc upon all the neighboring countries. The waters of fullness are drunk by them. They go out and, and uh, steal and do all the nasty things. Or it could be talking about God's people, uh, God's people return here. They 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 come back to to God, and they but they are receiving. They're drinking this fullness of the envy, or the, not the envy, the anger, the rage, the malice of the wicked people. Either way, uh, it's not a good situation, right? In fact, verse eleven says they say, they claim, they announce. How does God know? You know, God. This, where is this God? Why why should we serve him? Right? Isn't that what Pharaoh said? Who is Yahweh that I should serve him? I don't know who that is besides. I'm not going to let his people go. Put him back to work. How does God know what's going on? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Again, depending on how you interpret verse 11, or verse 10 rather, is this the wicked people saying this or is this God's people saying it? Either way, the question comes, where's justice? Where is God? I thought he's a good God, right? I thought he is a God who is just and, and always does what is right. Isn't that the issue we saw in Job? I mean, Job is suffering. Where's God's justice? How is it that Job, a righteous, righteous, I mean, a righteous of the righteous guy is suffering so terribly, so extremely? It's because of God's purpose being fulfilled. But this, they're saying, oh, well, God must not know, or God must not care, or God not, must not be able to help. He just, he has limitations too, you know, which is all false, blasphemy. It's not right. But this, this claim is directly against God, which reminds us the issues back in Job it's not so much a contest between God and Satan. It's not so much an issue of suffering of Job. It's not all. It's, is God worthy? Is God who he says he is? Is God full of his own holiness, his justice, his sovereignty, his purpose, his ability to affect his work based on his perfect knowledge? How does God know? God knows. There's nothing hidden from his eyes. These people are deluded. They are just like, if you don't mind, their father, Satan, who, is, who thinks he's got Jesus exactly where he wants him. No, 
he is he is a, a deceiver and being deceived. It's, it's just horrible, horrible situation. Blasphemy against God. He makes a summary statement here in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased their wealth. Did you notice he hadn't mentioned wealth prior to this time? He had been talking about how they die, how they live. He talked about their health. He talks about their, their activity, their proud, uh, arrogant condescension, their oppression toward other people. Only at the very last, as he mentioned, boy, they have more than I do. He is more concerned with the apparent injustice. It's not the stuff he's concerned about. What does this tell me about God? That's why he says, my feet almost slipped. It wasn't because he was envious over here. He says, what that proves, at least in his mind, is that God is not just. Maybe God isn't good to Israel. Maybe he makes no distinction. He, I mean, he's pretty, made pretty harsh distinctions, you know, given us all the Mosaic law. Why didn't he give that law to those people out there? I mean, we have to do all these things, and he mentions this in just a moment, about all the, the work he has to do to please God. He says, they don't do anything. And yet, I'm angry. I'm angry with them. I am upset. I'm disappointed in God. God, you let me down. How, how could this even be? He says, look, that's what the wicked are. And this is, this is how it is. This is how the world operates. And I am just undone. Can't even stand it. What's going on here? Well, his conclusion, or his self-application, verse 13, is again, surely, same as we saw in verse 2, right? Or verse 1, surely God is good to Israel. Surely in vain. Now, wait a minute. Wait a second. Are you hearing what you're saying? In vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Why? For I've been stricken all day long and reproved every morning. And what do I have to show for it? In vain. There's no benefit to being godly. I mean, if this is what being godly is, why don't I just go out and you know, forsake all this stuff? I can get a different job out in the world. I can go work for these pompous, arrogant people because at least they're getting away with it and it seems like God doesn't care and they've got a good life. And you know, if that's all this that matters, you know, living well in this age, then I'm going to attach myself over there. He says... <clears throat> He says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Going back to the idea of, you know, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I have labored to keep my heart pure. I have labored to, to not just uh, resist sin, but to forsake it, turn away from it. I have striven, not just externally, you know, washing my hands in innocence with his actions, but in his heart where the, where the real battle is fought. I have striven to maintain a purity toward the Lord, to have a clear conscience before God in my inner thoughts, that I would have such a, a peace knowing that the relationship that I have with God, that's the most important, and I want to maintain that. I want to be very diligent to keep my heart pure, to wash my hands in innocence. I'm not going to let temptation rule my day. I'm not going to meditate upon the, the um, prosperity of the wicked uh, but then he says, but why shouldn't I? I mean, they have it all going for them. He's washed his hands. In innocence, remember when Pilate washed his hands ceremoniously, saying, I'm free from the blood of this man. May his death, may his blood be on you and your children, or be on you. And he says, yes, we'll take it. And they, they suffered for that. So he says, I've, I've done all this in vain. I've been stricken all day long. I've been reproved every morning. Again, these pompous, wicked people, they're not subject to the same issues that we are. They get off, they get off uh, I was going to say scot-free, but that, that, that's me. Uh, um, they get off without any kind of penalty, any kind of punishment. They're just always stricken. Ne never, excuse me, never stricken, but here I am, stricken all day long. No relief, no respite. What's every curse mentioned in Deuteronomy 28, right? There are blessings, but then the cursings, man, they're coming upon me. Why, why, why? I've been stricken by all kinds of circumstances, but then it seems like God himself is against me. He is reproving me. He is chastising me. He's challenging me. He's correcting me. He's telling me where I'm wrong so I can be right. And man, it just, I'm done. I'm fed up with it. Verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. He was in a very precarious situation. But then he thought, and this is the first, if you don't mind, check on his giving full vent to his anger, his rage, his anger against God, not just the people, he's envious toward them, but where is God in this situation? But he's, he's started to think, and he's thinking even of his duty to the people. It's not like he is his own private citizen. He's got a public duty to the people to direct them to God, to direct them to right theology, right doctrine. And he says, therefore, in verse 15, if I had said... I will recount thus, which is to say, if I were to spread all what I just said in verses um, 
uh, 3 through uh, 14 or so, if I had if I'd shared these words to my people, if I had led my people in singing, you know, God is good to the wicked and pompous and arrogant and they just have all, and that, he says, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have led them to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to lead them in wrong doctrine. He says, I would have betrayed them. I would have led them down an improper path. If, wait a minute, didn't, didn't he write a psalm about this? Right? Aren't we reading it again 3,000 years later? Yes, because he didn't stay in that situation. He did not recount this whole thinking of his while he was still in that, if you don't mind, stinking thinking. He had identified it. He confessed it in his psalm, but because he had set it aside, because he had been corrected. And he offers the context. This is what I thought. This is where my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. But I'm on a sure foundation now. Let me tell you where I used to be. Let me tell you where I am now. It's very important when we help one another in dealing with sin, because this is a sinful attitude, sinful, blasphemous against God. It is helpful, if you don't mind, even necessary for those who are, according to Galatians 6, verse 1, those who are spiritual, restore those who are uh, in, a, in a trespass, caught in any kind of a, uh, entangling sin, like we read about in, in Hebrews 12 that those who are, maybe even have dealt with that same issue, but had victory, not those who are still struggling with, oh, brother, I've got the same issue, alcohol, you know, let's go to the bar and talk about it. No, you don't want that kind of situation. You want somebody who is feet on the ground, feet stable, and, and uh, having victory over these things. So Job, excuse me, had Job on the mind. Asaph says, if I had spoken this way without my rejuvenation without my full turning off of that unstable land I would have caused harm to God's people and you remember how Job's friends even accused him hey Job you're talking like this don't you know that you are still an influential person I mean you're kind of influential for the wrong purposes but you're saying these things about God don't you know don't you even care what other people are hearing out of your mouth careful and Job says well let me tell you about what you're telling about me anyway so there was a kind of a give and take there but Asaph says I recognize my responsibility what I say has bet- had better be for the edification of other people not for the tearing them down Hebrews 429 isn't it talks about rotten watermelon speech it's my I don't know it's my paraphrase of that whole thing unfruitful speech don't let any unfruitful word I mean, let no, how many words can you talk unfruitful? None. Let no unwholesome, unfruitful, unwholesome, rotten watermelon speech come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification. That it may give grace to those here, that may build up people. Asaph was very concerned about his role in the Israelite society. He says, verse 16, Ah, when I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight. I was trying to figure this out. I was trying to figure out God's justice, God's goodness to Israel. But then I kept looking over there and I thought, what in the world? God is doing good stuff to them over there. I can't stand it. And he says, when I gave thought to discover or think about, I'm looking at from this perspective and that perspective, it was trouble. It was difficult. It was a burden. It was toil to me. Same kind of word we see often in Ecclesiastes about toilsome and burdensome labor and so forth. It's also mentioned earlier in this passage about trouble, verse four. They're not verse five, rather. They're not in trouble as other men. They don't have that same kind of toilsome heaviness that that Asaph is facing because of his thought process going on there. He is in a full blown crisis of faith. He is wondering what in the world's going on. He had these burdensome thoughts. He's not going to share with other people until he has some measure of victory. Because he's not secure. He's not convinced what's going on here. He says, this is the change. Started with his recognition. I've got a responsibility to my people. And if you don't mind, he went to work. When you are in a suffering kind of situation, when you are worn down with thoughts and depression and all this kind of stuff, you should, if you don't mind, do the next thing you know to be right. Well, I don't know. I can't figure 10 steps ahead. Well, do the next thing you know to be right. And here, the next thing for him to be right is, I'm going to go to work. I've got a job to do. I may not have my heart in it. And we think, well, that's hypocritical. You, you need to get your heart in it. Well, thankfully, 
and, and the heart with the affection is, is, heart plays a big part in this, this whole psalm. I think six times it's mentioned here. But the heart is not just your emotions and not just your feelings. It is your volition. And sometimes your volition, your will, has to inform your emotions and say, okay, you don't feel like getting up, get up. You don't feel like going to work, go to work. You don't feel like talking nicely to people, talk nicely to people. He went to work, and he went to his work, which is in the sanctuary of God. Now, whether the temple was built, you know, this was the time of Solomon, who knows. Uh, he was commissioned during the time of David. Did he live in all? The point is, he came before God. Do you remember 2 Samuel 7, when, and this is a beautiful passage, when, when um, David says, I'm going to build a house for you, and Nathan the prophet says, go and do it, God's with you. But then God says to Nathan, no, I didn't tell you that. And go and tell him, he's not the one to build the house, your son's to build a house, and all these promises that God made to, to David. What did David do? How did he respond? He went in to the presence of God and he just sat down before him and says, God, who am I that you would so show such kindness to me? This kind of an attitude, drawing near to God. God, I don't know. I don't understand this. I've got all these thoughts going. Please make sense of it for me. Until I came to, into the sanctuary of God, then I understood. Well, what did he understand? What was the answer that changed his perspective? What is that which gave him the, the stable rock? Because he's dealing with issues of justice, the, the goodness of God, the, the fickleness of God, maybe. God doesn't really care. The discrimination or anti-discrimination. Where, where's God in this? Then I understood their end. Now, a lot of times we say that eschatology, uh, we, you know, it'll all, it'll all work out in the end. It'll all pan out in the end. Well, yes, we could say that. And there's a, there's a, a branch or a, a strain of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end time stuff, what's going to happen in the last days. So there's a, a whole category of eschatology that has the big cosmic picture in view. But there's also a, a substrain of that, which is personal eschatology, which could be summarized, if you don't mind, Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed to man once to die and then judgment. Personal eschatology is... You're going to die. You are going to be judged whether in Christ, having been uh, being identified in Christ, and he bore your punishment, or you're going to bear it yourself. Asaph's perspective changed when he recognized, no, there is justice. There is absolute justice. God is absolutely just. In their end, which, which Asaph was looking, again, Ecclesiastes language, under the sun. Under the sun, this is toilsome. It's vanity of vanities. This is horrible. You know, bad people prosper, uh, good people are just suffering. Why is this happening? It's just toilsome to me. But then you, you have to open your perspective, not just time, but eternity. Where is God, not just in this temporal life, but in the end times? He says, verse 18, where's, what's the end of the wicked? Surely you set them in slippery places. Whoa. He says, I was stumbling, I was almost slipping, but you really put them in a slippery spot to which there is no remedy. You have set them in slippery places. You caused them to fall. So who's causing them to fall? God is causing them to fall to destruction. Verse 19, how they become desolate in a moment. They are completely swept away by terrors. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So he had an understanding and appreciation that of their end, that they, they may look like they've got it all together right here. They may have no care for tomorrow. They're living right now, right? The, the impression, the expectation, this is all we have to live for. This is our life. When, we, when you die, you're dead. You're gone. There's no, that's not the end of the story. There is, if you don't mind, the larger part of the story that these people had no affinity for, no thought for. They were living just for this life. And that's what Asaph was getting into that thinking too. Oh man, I just wish I had more stuff, more, you know, be able to, show my, you know, strut my stuff in front of people. But like Jesus said, if you want the praise of men, whether for good or for bad, if you want the fear of, you know, people to fear you, if you just have the authority, then you can have it. Congratulations. You, you got the praise of men, but you have forsaken the praise of God, which is more valuable to you. Asaph was beginning to think, boy, the praise of men, that'd be really handy right now because this is where we live, right? And God says, you don't live there. You are living there, but you don't live there. You live in my kingdom. You are members of my house. You act like I care for you. 
these wicked people will be falling to destruction. They become desolate in a moment. Many times Job, and, and whether the, the friends or Job himself, describes the, the calamity, the great calamity that befalls the wicked. And here we have a sudden, surprising desolation. We have a, a comprehensive, you know, completely swept away. It's a terrific, you know, not a, a happy thing, but a terrible, terrifying situation that they are being undone. And it is not something that can be recovered from. Like a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when aroused, when you rise up, You'll despise everything about them, and they will be removed. And so that perspective, coming before God and realizing there's an eternity that we need to think about and set our, our, our heart upon. He goes on and says, okay, this is the change that's going on in my life. Verse 21, when my heart was embittered, and I was pierced within. It was horrible. I, he, these palpitations, his heart, uh, with his thinking, but also he mentions his kidneys here, and he says, I was just all pained. You can read... Um, I guess it's Psalm 32, when he kept silent, when David kept silent about his sins, his body was wasting away as with the fever heat of summer. It was a bad situation. And Asaph says, yeah, it wasn't just in my head. I had whole body, psychosomatic, right? The relation between the mind and the body going on. It was horrible. And he says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. It's brutish. Uh, not brutus, but brutish. He was just acting like a, like a beast. Do you remember how... God treated Nebuchadnezzar like the beast that he was because of his pride, because of his arrogance. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you go wander in the, in the grass for a while. Let your nails grow long in your hair and like it's feathers in your head until you recognize there's only one God. You're not him. There's God in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Asaph is thinking, here I am. I've got to figure out all these things. You know, I've got to figure out. I've got to give, you know, whether a book-length treatise or I've got to explain this to people. No, you don't. You direct them to God. You remember what you said at the beginning. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He says, and this is, this is his conviction now, verse 23, Nevertheless, putting all those other things aside, that stinking thinking, that wrong envy, and so forth, I am continually with you. It's that fellowship, that instruction, or the fellowship, the, the proximity that God has. As we draw near to God, what does he do? Draws near to us. As we have that aspect or the the action of uh, keeping your heart pure of washing your hands in innocence drawing near to god continually there's never a time that we can say well god has forsaken me god is somehow not with me no he will never leave you wait a minute didn't we just sing that he will never no never no never forsake well i'm not sure if i got that are you saying he'll never no never Never, ever? No, never. I mean, you get it? He will never forsake him. I am continually with you. That's his solace. That's his refuge. You've taken hold of my right hand. You have taken hold of me. You're the one who's holding me. John 10, you can think about that if we are in the Father's hand, nobody can snatch us away from that. If we are secure in our relationship with him, drawing near to him in purity, in Christ specifically, Asaph kind of anticipated that reality. But here he says, you have taken hold of me. You're the one who's directing this, this ship. You're the one who sustains me. Even if we were to get back into kind of slippery, stumbly kind of areas, God is upholding him, strengthening him, sustaining him in the course of that. He is the one that we can lean upon in those difficult, you know, even self-imposed difficult or self-constructed, right? Because it's Asaph's thinking that God, I'm into this situation. God is the one who is our refuge. He says in verse 24, with your counsel, you'll lead me and afterward take me to glory. God is instructing. Now, sometimes that instruction takes the form of discipline. Sometimes it's rebuke, chastisement. But God is always teaching. God is always helping us to know him better and to live a life that pleases him and and gives honor to him. God is the one who leads us. And notice he had a sense of the afterward of the wicked. But now he says, afterward for me, you will take me in glory. I will have that inheritance, kind of what Paul says in Romans 2 about the expectation of the, the, those who seek after um, glory will have eternal life. That's Romans 2, you can read that. Afterward, take me in glory. Far dis- different, distinct from what the wicked will have, desolation, ruination, despair, weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Jesus talked about that. They'll be cast out of the kingdom and they'll, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Contrast that with the righteous people glory, presence of God. And so he says here, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. On earth. Whom ha- Notice he didn't say, what have I in heaven? 
what am I looking forward to? Where are those golden streets? And where's my mansion? It's not what, it's who. And that's the same question that Job had to answer or, or, or finally resolve it. It's not about what I have. It's about who. Whom have I in heaven? And again, Asaph's mind and thoughts were so much on this earth, so much on this time, but he says, no, whom do I have in heaven? It's you. And, and we say, and we say, it, we say it sentimentally, we say it in an encouraging way. Oh, you know, our, your dearly beloved one has just died and they're going to be with their friends and their wife or their daughter, children or their parents. Or, and that's a beautiful thought. Do we have it in our mind? They are with Jesus. They're in the presence of Christ. Wow. Asaph knew it. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And besides you, not just heavenly perspective. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be satisfied with God. No, he comes back down to earth and says, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. It's not to say he's going to take a vow of, of, of uh, you know, not eating or drinking. or whatever. No, he says he's still going to do that. He's going to live on earth, but always in light of heaven, never setting his affections on things below, always on what's ahead. I desire nothing, give and take, as Job said. God can do that. I'm going to rest in him. I desire nothing. I have set my affection on nothing but God himself. And he's certain about this. Sometimes there's a, um, the translation says, even if my flesh and my heart may fail. It's not an if, it's a when. When my flesh and heart fail. So he's not just talking about the, the external flesh, but even his heart himself. If he were to get back into improper thinking, God is the rock of my heart, my portion forever. I'm going to die. People are going to bury me, put me in the ground. And yet God is my rock the strength of my heart, maybe your translation says, and my portion forever. He is my refuge. He's my strength. He's the one that I run to. He is the one who gives me confidence. He is my support. Not any stumbling, no slippery kind of thing anymore. He is my secure foundation and my portion. One thing about the Levites is they were not given a tribal allotment during all Joshua getting parts of this land up north and south. They were given God himself. I will be, God said, I will be to the Levites your portion, your inheritance. You trust in me, I'll provide for you. Asaph knew this clearly in his life, and he says, God is not just my portion in this life, but in heaven. He is my refuge. And he returns to this, this important idea, justice, verse 27. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you. This word, uh, idea of uh, unfaithful is adulterous. Someone who I mean, committed to this guy. God is your husband, and yet you are acting so wickedly, so adulterously. Well, God destroys those people. He brings them into a punishment, a perishing. Behold, those who are far from you, they're acting like they're far from God. They don't want God in their lives. They've got it going pretty well. He says, let me tell you, they're going to perish. They are going to be destroyed. Everyone who is unfaithful. But, verse 28, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Drawing near to God himself, that's what I'm after. I don't need this stuff. I need God. I have set, set Lord Yahweh as my refuge that I may recount all your works. He says, I have a job to do. And he's going to be faithful to finish that job, not to direct people or lead people into stinking, thinking, poor theology. He's going to recount, this is what God is doing. This is what God has done. This is who God is. And he is so committed to that clear uh, doctrine of recounting all that God is doing in his life and in the life of Israel, and not just Israel, but all the world, all the cosmos, God himself will have his will be done. Let me give you four ideas to wrap it up, and I'll be done, promise. And they're on the screen, so if you want to run down or whatever. Sound faith is based on sound theology. You want to have a sound, growing, lively faith, you better be a, a very clear theologian. And you think, oh, I'm not a theologian. Everybody is a theologian. You all have a doctrine of God. You all try to explain who God is, what he's doing in this life. You better make sure your theology is straight from God's word, based on who God is truly as revealed in his word. When we lose sight of who God is, it gets into chaos, stumbling, slipping, not good. And this has to do with how do we handle the tough issues of life? We have to look to his word. How do we understand this? Look to his word. How do we... Um, should we ever be driven to question who God is? No. Based on our theology, we rest in that. Second idea, God fulfills his justice in his time, in his way. Well, God hasn't done it yet. God will do it. Well, God hasn't done it this way. God will do what seems best to him. Can we rest in him? Do we need to, do we need to, to 
uh, question him? Do we need to say, well, God, you're doing with the wicked the same thing you do with the righteous. They're getting away with it and you're, you're letting them rest, trust. God will bring all these things to pass in his time. We may not understand his justice right now in this age, but we can trust him. Now, do you need God to answer you? Do you need God to answer your questions before you will trust him? Do you need God to apologize for what he's done with you or for, with your loved ones? God has done them wrong. God, I'm waiting for you to apologize. No, let God be God. Trust that God will set all things to right in his time. Third or fourth here, God's goodness does not guarantee temporal blessings. Well, wait a minute. He promised he's going to do good to the righteous and bad to the wicked. Yes, he will. Ultimately, eternally, you, you know, in the, in the new heavens and new earth. But in this present time, no, not always. Uh, and even, even for us to say, well, I want the blessings. Do you know how many times? Well, just think in the, in the life of Job. Do you know how much Job learned about God through his suffering? Now, he wouldn't have chosen it. He was having a pretty good life there, you know, for all the greatest of the sons of the East and all that kind of thing. But he learned about God through his suffering. And some people would say some of the, God's richest blessings come through trials and suffering, chastening even by God. As, as Asaph said, I'm chastened or rebuked every morning. Chastening by God is not evidence of a disfavor, of his disfavor. He doesn't like us. No, it shows his great love for us. Romans or Hebrews 12 speaks about that. When we ask questions like, well, how could God fill in the blank, negative assessment? You know, if God loved me, then, then what? Then what? Would he give you eternal life? Would he forgive your sins? Can you rest in that? Can you, does he give you himself? But he didn't give me that thing or this thing or these people. Where is your perspective? Where is your affinity, your affection? Last idea. Fourth, God is our best treasure. It's not about what you get, but whom you get. We want to love God, not as gifts. We want to draw near to God for himself, not for what he can give or what he takes away from us. We find our satisfaction in Christ. We can agree with the psalmist, the hymn, modern hymn writer said, Lord, haste the day when faith, the faith, shall be sight. We want to rest in the fact that God is for us. God is with us. We can find him. The nearness of God really is our good. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word, your kind word to us. We know so many issues, so many turnings to the, to the right or to the left. We find our own lives and being, not being secure in our doctrine and our theology, our uh, theology proper, who you are, what you've done in the universe. Please help us to rest in you. Please help us to be satisfied with you and in you. Help us to draw near to you. And even as we have opportunity to share our testimony of coming to understanding of your goodness, of your mercy, of your patience, you give time to those who are wicked to repent. We ought not think that that's you being unjust or unattentive or anything like that, but you are kind and patient and you are a saving God. We thank you for your salvation. Again, we pray you'd save souls even in our midst this morning. We pray that we would trust you better. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.